back to the core. My name is Nick Mombello, and each week I bring you conversations with inspiring guests who are adding value to the world and who we can learn from in order to improve our lives and improve who we are. This week on the show, I had the honor to sit down with Eric Godsey. Eric is somebody that I've heard on many different podcasts over the past couple years, and I was really excited to sit down to talk to him about some of the current work that he's doing. He's currently in the process of writing a book in regards to mental health, depression, antidepressants, and then furthermore, some of the or unpacking some of the natural ways that we could help solve the mental health issues that we currently have in our world and in our society today. I'm really excited for this episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you're new here, welcome and thank you for listening to the show. If you're not new here and haven't done so already, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. It really helps other people come across the show so they can listen as well. And I just want to say thank you for being here. So without further ado, on with our show with Eric Godsey. Eric Godsey, I am honored to have you here. I've listened to you for a couple of years now and just excited to have a conversation with you. Thank you and welcome to the core. Thank you for having me on, man. It's an honor. Thank you. Um, a common theme that I have on the show is asking where people come from and how they got to where they are today. And I really appreciate your story. And I was wondering if you would be able to share a little bit of that as well today. Yeah. So um, I grew up in a family where both my parents were in the military. We didn't have much money, but we had enough. Um, I didn't know what entrepreneurship was. I for sure didn't know what abundance was. We never went on a family vacation. There weren't anything like that happening. And um, <clears throat> high school was pretty easy for me. School was pretty easy for me when it came to academics. Uh, no one in my family before had gone to college. And so I didn't really know what I was doing. And I only applied to the college that sent me an invitation <laughs> letter. And it ended up being a Baptist private university. And I was a raging atheist. And I didn't know that until I went to my orientation day. And I was like, what the fuck have I gotten into? <laughs> um, <clears throat> college was a really transformative moment for me because that first year of school, I didn't know how to work hard. I didn't know how to study because I never had to. And the moment that I had to begin to study, I just stopped going to my classes and I failed all my classes. My GPA at the end of my first year was 0.7. I should have been expelled, but because I was on a scholarship, they were getting paid for me to go there because it was like the GI Bill because my mom had gone to Afghanistan. Um, and then at the end of that first year, I didn't know who Joe Rogan was. I didn't know what a podcast was, mm. but I saw Joe Rogan's first stand-up on Netflix. And he has this joke where he starts talking about, like, we all think that we're smart, but if all the smart people died, we would die. Like if the electricity went out right now, what would you do? You would do what I would do. You would sit on this stool and you would wait. And if it didn't come on in two minutes, you'd be like, these fucking idiots don't know how to do anything. But if all the smart people died, we would die. No one knows how these lights work. No one knows how this microphone works. And I just started smoking weed as a freshman in college. 
and I was smoking while I was watching that. And I had this existential religious moment watching Joe Rogan do stand up where I realized for the first time in my life, I don't know how to do anything useful. I don't know how to do anything pragmatic or technical. All of my, like, I think I'm smart is because I argue with people and I would argue with teachers, but I didn't know how to do anything. And like overnight, something in me radically changed where I realized I'm wasting my life. I'm throwing away this amazing opportunity. I've got to change. And so I began to read philosophy really deeply. I began just watching YouTube lectures all the time on like philosophers debating about God and religion and science. And I slowly stopped drinking. I stopped hanging out with most of my friends who really were just friends because we all had the same coping patterns. Mm -hmm. We weren't, we didn't know how to be intimate with each other at all. And then I, um, eventually found podcasts. And the first podcast I ever listened to was Aubrey Marcus with Joe Rogan. The first time that Aubrey was on Joe's sure. and they were talking about this thing called ayahuasca. And it was the first time in my life that I saw examples of men who were outside of the box. Like I grew up in a small town of 8,000 people. I never saw like a grown man doing something interesting. Like all the grown men I ever saw were either in the military or they were like family men who had, you know, really mm. been caved into the matrix and, you know, they're doing their best. But then I started doing psychedelics and psychedelics. I did probably uh, LSD or mushrooms or DMT every weekend for like 10 weekends in a row in college. And it absolutely changed everything. And then uh, I eventually graduated. And with my fancy degree, I got a job at Chipotle wrapping burritos, asking people <laughs> if they knew that guacamole was extra. And after being there for a couple of months, I realized I'm going to have to create my own life if I'm going to have the type of life that I want. And so I read The 4-Hour Work Week three times by Tim Ferriss because it was so foreign to me that the first time I read it, I knew it was important, but I had no idea what it was talking about because I'd never been exposed to any of these things. And then I eventually realized because of that book that I wanted to start a website. I wanted to become an expert at habit change. I wanted to start coaching people on habit change and like start making like courses on habit change, blah, blah, blah. I eventually finessed a job where I was working as a call center manager for an insurance company. But really what it was is I would look at this chat room every 10 minutes, but every other nine minutes I was working on my website or reading books. And after about 16 months, they realized that I wasn't working and they fired me. <laughs> And the day that I got fired was the day that Aubrey launched his first online course called Go For Your Win. Mm -hmm. And I'd never bought an online course before. I thought they were stupid. I thought like, I'm not going to pay someone to tell me how to live my life. I'll figure it out on my own. But something in me told me to buy it. And I bought it. And I was super active in the community. And he had an in-person graduation. And he knew my name because of how active I was. And he came up to me and shook my hand. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get a fucking job at Onnit. So I applied to get a job. I had all these amazing dreams and synchronicities that were really telling me that I was going to get this job. Mm. I even moved to Austin before I heard back because I was so confident. And then I didn't get it. And I was fucking devastated. My intuition had never been so loud about something and it not come true. And so I binge drank for a couple of days. And then at the end of or at the, the morning of the third day, I realized like I'm going to have to fucking do this on my own. And that's, that was the day I started my podcast. Wow. And so I did the podcast. I slowly learned how to like do the coaching thing. And then a year later, I applied again on a whim to a really low level job at Onnit. And I 
I wasn't even expecting that I would get it. And the day that I applied, I went to bed. I woke up the next morning. I went in the Go For Your Win community and saw that the hiring manager had put the application for that job in the community. I commented on it and said that I'd applied and good luck to everybody else. <clears throat> and then after like an hour, like 15 people from the community had commented on my comment saying that I should get the job. And a part of me knew <clears throat> I'm going to get this fucking job. <laughs> and this is what my intuition was talking about a year ago. Sure. I just didn't understand the timeline. I eventually got the job. I started as answering customer service emails for Aubrey's website. And after about like four or five months, I began like talking to all the people that were around my cubicle. And some of them were close friends with Aubrey. I started talking about Jung and dreams and myths. And eventually the people around him were like, you need to go talk to that dude at that cubicle. Like he's, he's got some fucking things to say. And Aubrey came up to me one day and he was like, dude, I've been reading your emails that you've been sending people. Like you're really smart. And I didn't know really how to respond to that. And he eventually asked me to come on the podcast. The first two podcasts we did ended up being some of the most downloaded podcasts that he ever has done. Mm -hmm. And then he started Fit for Service um, at the end of that year. And he told me, he didn't ask me, that I had to be a coach. And I was terrified, but I said yes. And then becoming a coach for Fit for Service has transformed me into what I am now. And what was the feel? So you said you were terrified, but what else was going on when you were when you were told you're going to be a coach, what was the voice inside of you? Were you like, obviously I'm going to do it? Or was there any resistance to actually right. becoming a coach? So when I applied to Honor for the second time, the reason I applied was because three days before that, I accidentally ate 180 milligrams of THC. And for people who don't know, about 10 milligrams is, is equivalent to smoking like a joint. And I'm very sensitive to marijuana since I did psychedelics. I used to smoke every day, but once I did all those psychedelics, um, I became very sensitive to marijuana. And it would just take one hit for me to be high. And so when I accidentally ate 180 milligrams, I had the most terrifying experience I've ever had, way more terrifying than any psychedelic I've ever done. And the huge like lesson from that experience is whenever I get the call to do something, even if I am afraid, I'm going to do it, period. And uh, so I ran that experiment the entire time I was at on it. And when he told me, it was the same thing. I was afraid, sure. but if I get the call, I do the thing, period. And what have you learned as a coach since then? Oh my God, so much, so much. Um, one of the big things that I learned is, so I have a stutter. And um, I've always been afraid to be like a public facing person. I've, I've always fantasized that like whatever I would do in the world, I'd be behind the scenes. And it's because I was afraid to speak. And at the first um, in-person event where I had to host a workshop, mm. again, I was terrified, but I prepared, I did it. And then I felt the power that happens when you show up in person and you convey your information through your voice and your body. And I instantly knew like my entire vision of my future is going to have to change now. Like I have to show up. So that was one thing. Another thing is I realized like when you begin to teach people anything in person, if you learn how to listen to their body, their bodies will teach you how to be a more effective teacher than anything else that you can possibly do because their nervous system will light up 
when you say something that resonates in truth. And their eyes will start to glaze over when you're not connecting and you're not explaining whatever the thing is well. And that's constantly been honing my ability to articulate the ideas that I study. And, you know, it's, it's helped me upgrade really fast. Mm. Another thing is like, <clears throat> I'm not afraid to be around powerful people now, like because I've been in this space long enough and there's a lot of really powerful people in the group along with the other coaches, like I feel fundamentally worthy to be in any of these rooms at any of these tables now. And another thing is like, this is kind of a side note, but before being a coach, I didn't think that I was worthy to be with like the, the top or highest quality type of women. And that's a subjective thing based off every individual, but I just didn't think that I was worthy. Mm. And the process of doing this and showing up, like I fundamentally feel worthy for that too. And, um, the other major thing is like, I know what my calling is more clearly than ever before. And it's through having to show up and coach these people because I'm learning what resonates with everyone. Like one of the major things is the hero's journey as an archetypical story mm -hmm. applies to everyone's life. I've never seen it not work. And when people don't have that framework and then you explain it to them, they instantly begin to navigate their life more effectively. Yeah. And it blows my mind constantly. Do you feel as though doing conversations or teaching oh, like through the computer, through Zoom, through whatever media software you're using, are you not able to connect in the same way that you are in person? Um, just seeing somebody light up like you were talking about? Yeah. So um, the thing is, is that it's not quite as powerful as being in person, but it's more, it's closer to being in person than anything else that we've ever had. Yeah. Like, you know, if I'm paying attention, I can see when your eyes get wider. I can see when your posture change. I can see when your eyes glaze over. And so Zoom can be incredibly powerful, but there's something about having each of the bodies in the same room yeah. where there's something bigger happening. I agree. Definitely. So now, fast forward a little bit, I don't know how much time, but now you are currently writing a book with Aubrey on mental health, uh, antidepressants, APA, DSM. Could you elaborate on what you've learned so far and what you've researched and <laughs> kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, to go into that story fully would take hours. Yes. Um, interestingly, uh, most of the stuff that I have found out about pharmaceutical drugs, <clears throat> about the DSM, about the APA, that's not going to make it into Aubrey's book because Aubrey's book is focused on solutions. Sure. And most of that is explaining how we got to the problem. But what I brought to him was so impactful that he was like, I'm going to get you a book deal <laughs> after we're done with this book. And you can tell this story in your words because this is your research. Um, and the way that he explained it is it was like, we're playing chess and you just put Godzilla on the chessboard and uh, Godzilla needs to be there, but I don't know how we play chess with Godzilla on the chessboard. Sure. So the history of all that stuff will be in the book that I'm going to write. Um, but the insights that will lead to effective interventions that you can do now will make it into his book. Okay. Well then could you elaborate on your book? Yeah. So um, the current working title is called Twilight of a Titan, 
And I'm essentially going to use Carl Jung's idea that the master stories of a culture, those are what the gods are. And I'm going to tell the myth of Kronos. Are you familiar with the myth of Kronos? No. So Kronos was the king titan in Greek mythology before all of the gods were born that we now know as, you know, like Zeus and sure. uh, Ares and all those people. And he got a prophecy from his mother that one of his children would overthrow him and kill him. So what he did is he started to eat his children. Whenever his wife would give birth, he would eat his children. And I fundamentally think that the current mental health care system makes us sicker on average. It is eating us. And so I'm going to tell the story of, you know, and the twilight is like the end mm -hmm. of the reign of something. So I'm going to tell the story of Kronos, his rise to power um, and his fall. And then instead of, so Zeus is his last child that eventually overthrew him because his wife started to see that he was eating her fucking children. Yeah. And so she fed him a rock in place of Zeus and hid Zeus in a cave. And then Zeus was raised by all these like spirits of the forest and stuff. And then once he became a man, he went and he killed his father and out of his father's dead body sprung all of his brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell the story of Hermea, which is a female goddess, which I think is what needs to be happened. That the archetypical feminine and it's rising is actually going to be the thing that brings the healing to the mental health and physical health paradigm that we are currently in. Because I think that the reason it's not working is a suppression of the feminine in all of us. Because it's the feminine that connects you to your body, mm -hmm. that gives you your sense of um, intuition and feeling. And most of the pharmaceuticals that we use is to numb the messages from your body. I think that most of the symptoms that we call mental illnesses are messages from your body that something is wrong. Something needs to be fixed in your life through your behaviors and to take psychiatric medication, not in all cases, but in most cases in the way that it's done in our healthcare system currently is to block people from that feeling. Like the story that we currently have is if you feel anything other than content, it's because you're a broken machine. And if we simply give you the right chemicals, we will fix the machine. As opposed to maybe we're living in a culture that isn't healthy for us. Maybe we're living lives that aren't healthy for us. Maybe we're in relationships that aren't healthy for us. Maybe we're pursuing careers that aren't healthy for us. And that these messages, these symptoms, these mental illnesses are ways that your body are trying to communicate with you you are not living the life that you're supposed to live. And instead of numbing them, they're a call to adventure. They're a call to transform. And I want to tell the story of Hermea as the goddess of the revolution that I see is happening with things like um, psychedelic interventions for mental health. Like a study just came out a couple of days ago that was sponsored by Tim Ferriss that found that uh, psilocybin assisted psychotherapy is four times more effective at uh, relieving symptoms of depression than our best antidepressants. That's just wow. one example. There's things like holotropic breath work and ecstatic dance and the fundamental healing aspect of community and being out in nature. I think all of these are aspects of this rising goddess that I call Hermea and I mm. want to tell her story. And going to the piece where you said, 
we aren't living the life that we are supposed to live. Uh, you mentioned in a podcast previously that the only other creatures in the world that get mental health illnesses are animals in the zoo. And it yes. just so happened the day I heard that podcast that you had, I went to the zoo with my son. He's one years old wow. and he loves the zoo right now. Like you go to the zoo, he sees the animals, he can pick them out. Like six months ago, he wouldn't have been able to determine there's an animal right there, but now he sees it, his eyes light up and he's, you can tell he's just excited to see something. But then I heard your podcast earlier that day and I was like, but this is not how it's supposed to be. And I live in Oakland right now. We were at the Oakland Zoo and we saw elephants and lions and tigers. And that's not in the uh, nature or the climate that these animals are supposed to thrive in. And I just thought like, yes, it's good that they're able to protect these animals because they wouldn't be able to live in the wild now if you set them free. But at the same time, it's not how it's supposed to be. And then connecting it to us now, we aren't supposed to live in a box, staring at screens, sitting on fluffy couches and leaning back the whole night and doing whatever that's comfortable. Like that's not in the nature of the human being that it's right. supposed to be. And it was just a weird synchronicity <laughs> that happened that day where... I heard yeah. you and then I was, or and then I was at the zoo and I was like, Oh my God. So, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things to share with the audience is, um, there is a whole field of ethology that will essentially study the neurotic patterns that domesticated animals will exhibit that we never observe when these animals are in the environment that they've evolved to be in. And one example is like birds will begin to pick out their own feathers. Uh, elephants will smash and grind their tusks against stone until they become nubs. Uh, some chimpanzees and some bonobos will isolate themselves from the rest of the group and just kind of like stare off into space and show symptoms of depression. Um, the really classic example is the bent fin of the orca whales that we have in like places like SeaWorld. And what's really wild is the way that we induce depressive symptoms in mice so we can study the effect of antidepressants there's two ways that we do it one is we put them inside of a cup halfway full of water and it's a glass cup and we make the rats swim until they give up the other one is we will hang the rats from their tail and the rats will try to free themselves but they won't be able to and will wait until they give up the way that we induce depression in animals is to put them into a situation where their actions do not relieve the stress that they are under and then they become helpless. And when you look at the way our culture works, so what's really, really tough is that IQ does not seem to, uh, it doesn't spread evenly. And there is a distribution of IQ where something like 23% or maybe 18% of the population, their IQ is under 80% or is under 80. And what that means is it's hard for them to even follow written instructions. That's millions of people. Being born into this culture, if you can't read, you're going to feel helpless because of the way that this perverted version of capitalism operates currently. And even if your IQ is high enough, 
if you're born into the wrong socioeconomic conditions or you come into a broken family, then everyone's got trauma. Um, it can feel helpless to try to find meaning if you're using the story that's been given to us by the materialistic, rationalistic <clears throat> perspective that we currently have that's completely devoid of spirit. And <clears throat> a part of the revolution that I think is coming is learning how to function inside of the cultural game that we are in, but also finding ways to be in accord with the nature that we've evolved <clears throat> to thrive in. And so like one thing is like, get your feet on the ground every day. We've evolved to walk something like 20 miles every day. We have not evolved to sit down for 18 hours a day. And so like simply beginning to walk for like an hour a day can absolutely revolutionize um, a lot of the conditions that people believe that they have that are uncurable. Another huge one is we are social animals. We are meant and designed to be in an intricate group up to 150 people where we know everyone. We see them every day. We hear their breathing when we sleep. We work with them. We hunt with them. We eat with them. We love with them. We process our trauma with them. And most people, it's something like one in four people report not having a single close friend. Like that makes us sick. Mm -hmm. And what's wild is people who report feeling lonely, that has a higher correlation to early death than smoking an entire pack of cigarettes a day, of being wow. an alcoholic of being obese or living somewhere with high levels of air pollution. It kills us to feel lonely. And lonely does not correlate with how many people are around you. Loneliness is independent of the amount of people that you have around you. It has to do with how or whether or not you feel seen. And so a huge part of the mental health revolution is learning how to be vulnerable and curating and cultivating a tribe or a community. And the situation that we're in currently definitely doesn't help the, the feeling of loneliness for people to go out and create that tribe that they want to. Sure, we have electronics and things that we can do to reach out to people, but you aren't able to have that face-to-face -face connection that honestly is what will really move the needle in the feeling seen and tribe aspect, right? Right. And there are in-between things that can be done now. Like a huge thing is you can write a letter to the five people that you feel the closest to where you say everything that you're grateful for about them being in your lives. And you can call them on the phone or you can FaceTime them and you can read it to them. And this has been studied experimentally, but this doing this where you say the complete truth about what you love and why you're grateful for someone who's in your life and you read it to them has a greater impact on relieving depressive symptoms than most other therapeutic interventions that we classically use. So that's just one example. Mm. Also, like the fit for service mastermind that I'm a part of, it can only exist because it started with social media. So like social media is a tool that if we learn how to use it intentionally can actually help us cultivate community. Mm. And then could you go into some of the, I guess, research or stuff that you've learned about antidepressants and then 
how can we or what can we do to just be better as a community or better as a world without maybe taking antidepressants if if that's an okay thing to say or you know right I mean? so this is a very yeah. um charged subject and the caveat that i want to offer before i get into the research is that antidepressants when used in the short term so that's 6 months or less in the most acute cases of depression so we have a depression scale called the hamilton scale and if you score at the very high end of it what studies do show is that if when you use it short term as a bridge for you to begin to make changes in your life that it can be effective and the way that it's kind of explained is if it's between killing yourself and taking an antidepressant 100% take an antidepressant but understand that antidepressants do not fix whatever is wrong at best they can numb you to the point where you can begin to get the momentum to make the small changes in your life that will help you to cope with those feelings of depression. So <clears throat> with that caveat, the research is, I won't get too technical because it would take sure. hours to really break down everything, but essentially all of our psychiatric medication came from us beginning to study vaccines and then finding that there were some side effects that would happen from some of these vaccines that seemed to help some mental disorders like in the 50s and the 60s. And they were eventually sold to us as if they were the equivalent of vaccines, that they would heal these things. And then <clears throat> the scientific research that came out for the next 20 years or so showed that there was no direct correlation between a chemical imbalance and then giving people these psychiatric meds that would lead to healing. And the National Institute for Mental Health issued in 1984 that there was no concrete scientific evidence for the chemical imbalance theory. Sure. Most people, when they are told about depression, the way that it's explained to them is that they have a chemical imbalance and that if they take this thing, it will fix the chemical imbalance and then they won't be depressed anymore. But most people who take antidepressants end up taking antidepressants for the rest of their lives. And most people who begin taking antidepressants end up taking other drugs to manage the side effects. And again, it's kind of hard to explain this without getting into the technicalities, but essentially a Harvard researcher named Irving Kirsch did a really big study, and I believe it's called um, Looking for Prozac but Hearing Placebo. He essentially found that when you properly control for the placebo effect, that um, the improvement on depression of antidepressants is the same as if you from if you give someone any other psychiatric medication. <clears throat> so what that means is the improvement that we see on depression, when you give someone an antidepressant, if you give them an amphetamine, or if you give them a barbiturate, or if you give them anti-anxiety medication, or if you even give them an SSRE, which is the opposite of what an SSRI does, the average improvement on the Hamilton scale is 1.8. The Hamilton scale goes from zero to, I believe, 51. And if you fix someone's sleep, their improvement on the Hamilton scale on average goes up four points. <clears throat> Essentially, what he found is that antidepressants, in most cases, barely improves people's conditions of depression. And it improves people's condition of depression the same as if you give them any other psychoactive chemical. And the way that he explained this is essentially 
the way experimental designs that are done to study antidepressants are structured is you either give someone the pill or you give them a placebo, but you don't tell them which one they get. <clears throat> but sure. by law, you have to tell them what the side effects are of the active drug. And then the people who get the active drug after a couple of weeks, they experience the side effects. They now know that they have the active drug and not the placebo. And this actually is called breaking the blind, which means that they now know what group they're in. Mm. And that actually invalidates the structure of the study. But the placebo effect is something that has to be measured in every single scientific study that includes health and human consciousness. And the argument that he makes is <clears throat> all of these chemicals, all these psychoactive psychoactive drugs, they're not fixing anything, but because they have side effects, the people who get them believe that they're getting the thing that will heal them. And the improvement that you see yeah. is mostly the placebo effect. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean that these drugs don't have real effects. They do. And like I said, they're there's a really great meta-analysis that looked at all the best studies that have ever been done, and they, have, they essentially found that antidepressants work better than placebo for six months or less for the most severely depressed people, but then after that, it seems to diminish drastically. And so the takeaway from this is, I believe that depression is not the result of something fundamentally being broken with you but that it is a message from your psyche that something about you needs to be transformed to meet the life that you are meant to live. Mm -hmm. And that if you ignore that long enough, it can paralyze you to the point where you can barely move. And antidepressants in that situation can be helpful, but they're a bridge to help you begin to cultivate, like finding out how to eat in such a way that doesn't cause chronic inflammation finding some type of working out that you love, that you resonate with, that gets your body moving, to begin to cultivate relationships where you genuinely have intimacy with other people, and then to begin to find your purpose in life. Like I truly believe that each of us are born with a divine task, and this, is, this can be found in most philosophical and religious systems, that people are born with a dharma or a destiny and that if you aren't living the life that that inner voice inside of you is trying to call you to live, it will haunt you. And one of the ways that it haunts you is depression or anxiety. Sure. Uh, I spoke with Tim Corcoran uh, a month ago or so, and he he believes as well that everybody has that innate purpose in you. And it's just a matter of, when will that purpose find you, whether, whether or not you're looking for the purpose or not, eventually, or at the same time that you are looking for your purpose, the purpose is also looking for you. Amen. So, so there's this idea in Greek mythology um, that was written by Plato in his epic work, The Republic, and it's called The Myth of Ear. And the idea is that Souls choose the lives that they want to enter into, and they enter into that life with a sacred mission. But the act of coming into a body is so violent that the soul forgets. But, the, but each soul is given what is called a daemon, and your daemon is your little guide that will slowly remind you of what your calling is. 
And Socrates was dubbed the wisest man in Athens because he only listened to his daemon. He only listened to that inner whisper inside of him. And the idea is that you're here to do something and you have a little whisper inside of you. And that little whisper might tell you, go read that book, go, go talk to that person, go apply to that job, leave this relationship, rebel against your parents, move to that new country, go on that adventure. And if you ignore it, the whispers start to get a little bit louder. And if you continue to ignore it, the whispers might begin to scream. And there's a great quote, and I don't remember it verbatim, but it's essentially, um, everything bad that has ever happened to you has been designed by you, specifically for you, to bring you back to who you are. And that this thing that is creating this woe in your life, it loves you completely. But the only way that it has to get you back on path is to prick you, is to cut you, is to say, no, this is not the way. And I believe that most of the messages that we get from our daemon, we have pathologized and we have called it mental illness. And instead of asking, what is this asking me to transform into? What is this asking me to let go of? What is this asking me to be courageous in service for? We go and we are given drugs that numb it, that mute it, but that doesn't make it go away and it doesn't fix what was wrong. Why do we ignore the voice that is inside of us? I think that we have been given a story by culture that you should be comfortable and that the way to be comfortable is to play the game that culture has told you to play, which I feel like is the matrix, which is go do something that you aren't really called to do, to make money, to buy things that you don't really need, and that the thing and that what will make you happy is to consume. Buy the things that we tell you you, you should buy. These things will make you happy, but they don't. And the type of life, like most people, the majority of your life, the majority of your waking life is going to be doing something that you actually don't like doing. And we have a cultural story that that's like the only option mm. and it's not. And I think when you really connect to the truth of what a human is, we are meant to do hard shit and to adapt. We are the descendants of an unbroken chain of the most adaptive creatures that have ever lived on this planet who have endured earthquakes and droughts and ice ages and have fought animals with their bare hands and have had to contend with the forces of nature and they survived. Mm. We are not meant to be comfortable. We are meant to strive bravely towards something meaningful with people that we care about and to be of service to them through us doing something great. And I think that lights up all of us we all know, we all know that we are meant to do something significant. And maybe significant for you is to be a conscious parent. Maybe what it is, is to start a garden where you live and to give food to people who can't afford food. Like it doesn't matter the scale of the call that you have, but sure. all of us have a call. And the thing is, everyone listening knows that whisper. 
I've never spoken to a human in my life who didn't know what I was talking about the moment I started to talk about it. Everyone knows because we all have it. And like, because of the story that we have been given, I think fundamentally people are afraid. People are afraid to be uncomfortable. They're afraid to try. They're afraid to risk. They're afraid to be judged by people who are stuck in the matrix. And fundamentally, I think the most healing thing that you can do is to learn how to listen to that whisper inside of you and to say yes to it every day. Wow. And there's a reason why people are drawn to movies like 300 or Braveheart or Lord of the Rings or whatever impactful movie where people are doing amazingly challenging uh, feats of whatever it is that they want to do or have to do, there's a reason why people are called to watch those and they enjoy it because it's something that's not in their life, but they're like, wow, I could do that. Yes. So one of the ways that the daemon or the whisper inside of you will talk to you is through admiration. You don't get to choose what you admire. You don't get to choose who you admire. And if you really feel into that for a moment, there are forces inside of you that you don't have conscious control of. And admiration is one of those forces. And movies are one of the ways that we are constantly trying to remind ourselves through art about what it means to be heroic. And so if you feel into, what is your favorite movie? Who is your favorite character from that movie? You don't get to choose what your favorite movie is. You don't get to choose who your favorite characters are. But characters are examples of modes of behavior that that whisper inside of us believes if we acted like that, maybe we would have a little bit more of the life that we want. And so one of the questions that you can ask yourself is what would, so pick whoever your favorite hero is and then ask yourself, what would this person do in this situation in my life if I was that character and then do it and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I have always been drawn to Batman just Mm -hmm. naturally and the whole story behind him is he took his fear and embodied his fear to the fullest extent and became his fear essentially. So just taking whatever it is that you, whatever it is that scares you and transforming it into something that can make you more powerful. And what's beautiful, man, is if we got 10 people who all agree that their favorite character was Batman, we would get 10 different explanations for what it is they most admire about Batman. That's your myth. Mm -hmm. That's your hero. That's how your Damon is talking to you, that you are being called. What are you most afraid of? Go face it. Integrate it. Have it empower you. And then it becomes a superpower. And this is the beautiful thing about the whisper is that it speaks to you uniquely. And so you could ask 10 different people about what it is about Batman that they admire the most. And each of them would give a different example that perfectly fits what they need to get from that character. Yeah. And then not 10 people that admire Batman, but 10 random people, they all have their own superhero or whatever character it is that they admire for their own specific reasons as well. And that's why we have so many different characters. Right. And one of the really powerful things to feel into is 
One of the ways that you can track what is most important in a culture is where the most energy is put. And the way that you can track energy in our culture is through money. The most expensive artistic creations in modern culture are movies. They're superhero movies. Hundreds of millions of dollars are spent. Hundreds and hundreds of people give thousands of hours to create stories. And that's an insight into like this will to become heroic mm. is so powerful that we are spending like it's it's the most expensive art that's made on the planet. Wow. Like what used to be the most expensive stuff was like cathedrals back sure. in the day or like epic religious monuments. And it was to serve the same function. It was to remind us that there's something divine in us. And even with the wave of rationalism that quote unquote killed God, mm -hmm. God doesn't go away. And God is now in our superhero movie. <laughs> yeah. Are you current? So aside from your research that you're doing, are you currently reading or learning anything in particular? So I just spent a very long stint studying trauma and I wrote about a 15,000 word article on what trauma is and how to heal it. <clears throat> and I actually just uh, recorded the entire article as a podcast today. So it's going to be coming oh, wow. out in a couple of days, but that's been the big thing that I've dove in into recently. Mm -hmm. And now my main thing is to rewrite my journaling course. Wow. And then is there anything that you do on a day-to-day -day basis to be better than you were the day before? Oh yeah. So <clears throat> every day for the first three to four hours of the day, no matter what's going on, I show up at my desk and I journal, I read and I write. And I'm always doing that no matter what. And then I try to work out every day. And then my big thing is like, <clears throat> after I serve my Dharma in the morning and mm -hmm. I work out, my big thing is whatever I do for the rest of the day, I'm going to tell the fucking truth. I'm not going to lie. And I think that that makes me a little bit better every day, no matter what arises. Yeah. What is it that, or do you have anything in particular that you journal about? So the type of journaling that I do is called the daily pages. And I got it from Julia Cameron's book, the artist way, mm -hmm. but essentially I just set a timer for 10 to 20 minutes and I just write stream of consciousness, whatever is on my mind. Sure. Um, so there is nothing specific, but then after I do that, I write down whatever dreams I remember. And I think dreams are one of the most powerful ways that our daemon will try to talk to us. And so I try to track my dreams every day and then I'll write out, what is my one thing? What's the one thing that if I got that done, I could do nothing else for the rest of the day and the day would still be a win. And like, for example, today it was to record that trauma article and that took me about two hours. Wow. Do you have dreams every night? So all of us dream every night, um, but whether or not Just you remember it, yeah, right. right. Um, I normally bring back at least one dream every wow. night. And if something big is going on, I might have two or three or four dreams, but um, so you sleep in sleep cycles and they last about two hours. And at the end of each sleep cycle for the last 20 minutes, you dream. So if you sleep eight hours, you're getting at least four dreams a night. Everyone dreams every night, as long as you get at least two hours. Um, but remembering them is something that takes like intentional practice. And like, for me, it's weird. And I don't know why this is, but the moment you sit up and your spine gets erect, 
you lose a lot of the dream. And then if you stand up and get out of bed, it, it's almost completely gone. So what I do is I roll over, I grab my phone, I grab my voice memo, and I just record whatever is on my mind without getting up. And then when I go to journal later that day, I either just rem remember it because I recorded it sure. or I will play the recording and then I'll write it out. Wow. I is does is it telling it or anything if you don't remember your dreams? So the, there's a there's a lot of ways to approach this. Um, one is if you just don't even try to remember your dreams, it's so easy just to not sure record them. But you're dreaming every night. Mm. Um, unless there, unless you're woken up by your son at like an hour and whatever, and then you exactly you don't complete the cycle. But what's interesting is if your sleep is interrupted, so you tend to dream in REM sleep. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get REM sleep, your body craves it more. And so uh, one of the things that I did in college is there's this thing called polyphasic sleep. And it's where you can replace a sleep cycle by taking a 30-minute nap at some point in the day at the same time every day for 30 minutes. And it takes about two weeks wow. for you. Yeah. So it takes about two weeks for your body to acclimate. But once you do this, um, almost all through college, like my last two years, I would sleep six hours at night and I would take a nap at the same time every day around like 3 p.m. But that nap, you go right into REM sleep and you REM sleep the entire time. And so you go right into dreams. And so I had so many dreams from doing <laughs> that. And so if you're constantly woken up by your son before you complete a dream cycle, you're actually more likely to go directly into REM sleep when you get dream or when you get sleep. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, to be honest, starting this or coming up with ideas to talk to you for a conversation, you're the first guest that I struggled to find ideas because there was so much that I could talk to you about. And I think that just speaks to the wealth of knowledge that you have. And I really appreciate you for that and wanted to thank you for coming on the show. It is an absolute honor, man. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate like the work that you put in beforehand before this podcast. Sure. And this was a great interview. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more or get in touch with you? Uh, I have a website, ericgotzi.com. My Instagram is my full name, Eric Gotzi. And you can check out my podcast, The Myths That Make Us. And I have a weekly newsletter I send out on Fridays that you can sign up on at my website. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Eric Godsey. I really appreciate and I'm grateful to have you here listening to my show. If you haven't done so already, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. It really helps out and it's a small effort that uh, really means a lot to me and really helps support the show. So thank you in advance for doing that. And that is all I have for today. I will see you here next week on The Core.